0: Hey, hey, this is your Great Lakes Dude, Jeff Liskay, coming to you on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast, where we're going to be going rage angler on all things Great Lakes, from gear, fly, big water, and swinging flies, of course. If it concerns the Great Lakes, we've got you covered, so stay tuned to this next episode.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone-Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone-Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton.
0: Hey, everyone. This is Jeff Liske, a.k.a. Great Lakes Dude, bringing you the another Wet Fly Swing podcast, Great Lakes. Welcome to the show. I'm super stoked for this episode because it's really good timing. There's going to be cooler waters along the shoreline of Lake Erie, there's going to be cooler waters all over the Great Lakes, which are going to start driving these fish in the steelhead and these migratory trout up into the streams. And I just got a report today that things are starting to happen in my end of the South Shores, but it's sort of a great episode. I'm sort of really looking forward to it because we're going to start off with a great guest, Tyler Densmore, and he's on the Grand River. But before I introduce him, this is where I cut my teeth with the two-handed game 20-some years ago on the shores of the Grand River, which is runs in on the north shores of Lake Erie. And it's a very unique fishery, and I'm super excited to have Tyler come here on the episode, give us the skinny on all the, the steelhead programs and everything else he has, you know. But uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Tyler Densmore. He is a guide service, which is flywater guiding instruction. He's a casting instructor. He's a real sage and Reddington ambassador. He's hosted many trips for Atlantic salmon. He's guided in the interior in BC for trout, Atlantic salmon on the Miramichi. The list goes on and on of his talents and the information he's going to bring us in this next episode in chat.
2: Welcome to the show, Tyler. Thank you very much, Jeff. A pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> nice, man. I, I can't wait. Um, you know, we have so much to chat about because we're both sitting in the wheelhouse of our seasons really beginning here. And, um, they're both pretty uniquely different, but, um, why don't you just give us a little background of like where you've been guiding, what, you know, your experience as a guide and like what you're up to today, man.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess a little introduction, I guess, and a little past background to, I guess, quickly summarize it with going into too much detail. I sort of, I cut my teeth growing up here in Ontario and Canada, fishing for smallmouth bass and all that type of thing, and uh small streams for brook trout and trans slowly transitioned from, you know, learning on a spinning rod and dunking worms to a fly rod through my teenage years. And eventually, I guess to to uh speed jump ahead a little bit, ended up out in Vancouver Island where I had my first ever fly fishing guiding gig and and I did a couple uh coastal stuff along Vancouver Island for sea run cutthroat and coho and that type of thing and uh, at the time out there I was working as a scuba diver on some fish farms a maintenance crew and then the idea was oh fly fishing guide this is this is awesome and my wife and I sent out all these went through all the magazines you know it's a little pre-internet and put this resume package and fired it out to all these places and we got hired by Keith Wilson at Wilson Sporting Camps on the Miramichi. So we were right in Tofino, British Columbia on the furthest west you can go in Canada. And we packed up our little Toyota Tercel and headed for the East Coast. And that's sort of where it all began, which was pretty amazing. And I, I don't think at the time I really knew what I was getting into because, you know, this is a, you know, fabled Atlantic Salmon River, right? And All these old time guides, and here I show up out there 23 years old and all ready to go, right? And I never swung a fly for a salmon or anything. And uh, and uh, yeah, but you know, they threw me right in and I had to learn quick. And uh, you know, luckily the uh, the guides out there brought me along, and and I'll tell you, I what a what a uh, what a way to get educated. I'll tell you, it was it was perfect. So Amazing. And and from there, I mean, we made contacts in Patagonia, back to BC in the interior to do some guiding there at various lodges and ended up in Patagonia at, on the Futaleafu River guiding. And uh, I mean, all these adventures, and spent some time in Tierra del Fuego up, up in the north of Argentina, chasing Golden Dorado. And uh, at the time, these fisheries were sort of being discovered. And it was uh, quite an adventure. I slept in some scary places. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, saw a lot of police officers coding, a toting AK 47s and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, you know, I had no idea what kind of situations I was getting myself into, but you know, it was fantastic. So long story short, ended up back in Ontario and set up here on the, on the grand river and you know, the rest is kind of history. So,
0: wow, man, I would have hired you when I heard Toyota Tercel. (laughs) <laughs>
2: yeah well, <laughs> it's like the but, theory
0: linkage that always locked up that was the sort of you know the starting system but that's awesome man
2: yeah it's cool so the
0: big adventure and you decided not to be the the vagabond fishing guide and just raise the family and stay on the grand river is that where you're born and raised in that area just like back to your home roots or just where you ended up
2: yeah i mean i, I was born in ontario and then uh was fortunate obviously to meet my beautiful wife Krista and we both had that sense of adventure which took us to BC and then it just snowballed once we got into the fly fishing industry sort of full-time there for about I think it was about seven years we were doing that full-time just working as a host couple or or guiding at these lodges back and forth between the south and northern hemisphere and you know foregoing the Canadian winters which was really nice but when family became part of that picture i sorta we settled back in ontario you know had kids you know got the house got the mortgage and and the fly fishing thing kind of fell away for a bit i had other responsibilities right and uh had to you know get what you'd call your regular day job to pay the bills and and uh get some money saved for the kids education but you know as the kids got older and and I, and I ended up moving into this Paris area along the Grand River. I got things fired back up and purchased a drift boat. And uh, for a long time, I operated on a sort of a seasonal basis and, and did as much as I could when I could. But in the last, uh, just before COVID, I was starting to really ramp things up, got a different boat, had another guide with me. And, and actually, in more recent history, I am now 100% all in. And uh, I've been able to sort of sell the house and sort of push all the chips in and go guiding full time. So
1: Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic Grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years' experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey, but an adventure of a lifetime. From the convenience of Vancouver, B.C., dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at RockiesAdventures.com for an exclusive, premium B.C. fly-in fly-fishing trip.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, man. Just right into the two-foot head first, like all of us. (laughs) That's it.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it was the dream, man. I've been working towards it for years, (laughs) right? So.
0: Yeah. You know, let's circle back. So I don't think all the listeners might quite know where you're located. And why don't you give me a little, this is such a unique fishery, all the Great Lakes, you know, migratory trout streams are. But I think yours is one of the most unique that has to offer. So why don't you give it, you know, the listeners a little background of like what you're, you know, what you're pursuing and where it's located and just a little intel on, you know, your program now.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I think I might have mentioned Paris, Ontario, and uh the say the section of river that flows through that area, Paris and Brantford. And that actually the area I guide in is has a special designation called the exceptional waters section. And that has to do with uh You know, quite a groundwater influence and and springs and cold water tributaries that that enter the river, which obviously are the characteristics that makes this river unique and special. I guess to sort of give an overview of the river itself, its headwaters are, I would say, um, you know, 100 miles north of us, Uh, It's sort of born out of a swamp area, Luther Marsh it's called, and it flows down into some uh, the main stem flows into a reservoir called Bellwood Lake. It's a big, you know, it's a dam with and its controlled for flooding and that type of thing. But uh, which is kind of unique there that they that dam is a bottom draw. And so it's cold water at the bottom. So there's a tailwater fishery below that in the upper Grand and the Alora Fergus area, which a lot of people associate the Grand River with. But oh. I'm not I'm not in that area at all. That's not where I focus on. That's a put and take. Fishery for brown trout, which is you know fan, has been fantastic over the years and very popular destination for people to visit, you know made popular by other other guide services and stuff over the years. But uh, as you flow south, that water warms up again, flows through some cities and urban areas, becomes more of a smallmouth bass fishery, or it is a smallmouth bass fishery. And then as it makes its way south, um, you we enter this like Paris and Gulf moraine area um, so the moraines are deposits left of gravel and rock left by the glaciers when they receded which is uh, really good for filtration of water and creates a really good source of of fresh clean spring water that comes in and starts to enter this river system as it flows down through Paris and essentially the river becomes more of a cool warm type of, scenario where we do have smallmouth bass present but we also have these thermal areas and thermal refuges i'll call it of cold water where now all of a sudden rainbow trout and brown trout have the habitat they need to su- survive as well and uh, we're also very fortunate to have a very prolific um, you know forage basin there of caddis and, and mayfly stoneflies and you know obviously those are the main uh and, uh, you know, the fish are quite focused on feeding on those insects. And, uh, and we also have two major tributaries coming in in the Paris Brantford area. Brantford is a town south of us, downriver from Paris, uh, the Nith River, which is also influenced by these cold water springs and a lot of spawning tributaries up there that the steelhead moved through to get to through our area. And then as well, Whiteman's Creek, which I'm sure you've heard of before, is a cold water, you know, year round trout stream, a nice one, like, you know, 15, 20 feet wide. And you can catch trout in there year round, lots of good groundwater uh, that, that enters the river, which is a major spawning tributary for steelhead. And, you know, obviously creates a big, big thermal cold water refuge in the main stem of the river for uh, the rainbows and browns. And, you know, as it flows down through uh, the town of Brantford, then again, it starts to, starts to warm because those springs, sort of stop entering as much and you enter into sort of a clay till kind of I'll call it more agricultural farmland down there. And again, it becomes, becomes like strictly a warm water fishery. So that's kind of the lay of the land I'll, I'll say, but, and I guess what makes it unique from uh, a steelhead perspective and the earlier on fish you touched on, I'm not jumping too far ahead we're good. No, not at all, man. Oh, <laughs> all right. is, I think
0: I, I, mean, I know a little bit of background, but this is really cool about a guide that, you know, you're so in touch and have a pulse on your community and your home waters, right? So it's, uh, it's really interesting. As it goes down below, you know, the, the, as it starts entering Lake Erie, then eventually it has multiple dams. These fish have to traverse, correct?
2: Yeah, it does have dams. So as it flows south of Brantford, it gets down to... Um, Okay, well, I guess I should back up a bit. There's a dam in Paris. That's at the upper limit of the steelhead migration on the main stem of the Grand.
0: Okay, perfect.
2: And they sort of veer off and go up the Nith River watershed, which is actually a beautiful river and very long with lots of cold water tribs on it. And uh, so if we move south back down to Brantford, there's a dam there called Wilkes Dam, but it's more of a speed bump, more of a weir. So the fish just shoot right over that. And then as you go down river, we get to the town of Caledonia, where there is a big impassable dam there uh, with non-functioning fish ladders. I'll say poor design when it was built. And <laughs> I, yeah, well, I believe actually at this day and age, there's there's two fish ladders on that dam, if you can believe it. And they they put uh, like the log stops in it or the baffles, I've heard them called. And they don't, they're not even installed anymore. It just, they're non-functioning. Fish don't even use them. So I I don't get it, you know, but anyways, that's another, another, (laughs) another side of things we could delve (laughs) into. And we may touch on again, but, uh, but that dam, that dam is the, I guess really the, is a feature in the river that creates the fishery and the special fish that we have almost because, uh, the steelhead we have up here can swim straight up the face of that dam. And it's about a 10 or 12 foot slope, but the pitch on the concrete, is steep enough that when that water comes over, you know, there's no airspace behind it. Like you might see on, on another dam. So that water kind of sticks to that concrete. So a, a, a good, strong, big steelhead comes up to that. And he just swims straight up, straight up the face of the dam, uh, which is, I think pretty special in a lot of ways that they're able to do that. And then, uh, and as you go further South, you, you get down into Dunbold There's another weir that doesn't stop them really up. And, uh, Then you're into lake erie and uh so circling back to the caledonia dam i guess is really the you know we got the cold water up here and then we have this feature of this caledonia dam which steelhead traditionally let's just say you know you and i both know the great lakes is kind of a a melting pot of fish stocking and and uh, invasive species and and all these things uh, which in some cases, create wonderful fisheries for us, but also it's, uh, also creates inferior strains. I'm going to say of naturalized steelhead in some cases, because there's mixing of genes and spawning that goes on in a lot of tributaries that both wild and stocked fish can access, right? Well, the Caledonia Dam just kind of sorts these fish out. So the weak ones don't get over, the strong ones do. And, uh, usually the strong ones are, are wild fish, or I would say 95 to 97% of them are wild fish that are naturally or naturalized in our tributaries upstream here in the cold water areas and go back to Erie to grow big, feed on those emerald shiners and gobies and all that good stuff. And then come back to us and get over that dam (laughs) and get back up here in the the imprinting of uh, you know feeding on main mayflies and caddis when they are young is still very much uh, alive and well and creates some great opportunities for us. So,
0: yeah, I mean it's also water temperature. These things have genetically learned to run you know almost not quite out of temperature, but super early to give them that you know that liveliness and their temperature zone to zip over the dam where once it gets colder and the water gets cold those, you know, your self-sustaining fish upriver where you're targeting, they're already in the river and all the other ones are sort of down below the Caledonia Dam just chilling up because they can't make it, can they?
2: Yeah, exactly. I didn't touch on that, but yeah, that's exactly, I should have mentioned that, but you are right. These fish are now sort of, they're genetically programmed to know that they got to get over that dam or they're not going to reproduce. And the unique thing about that dam is over the years these fish have learned to run you know before it gets too cold because when that water temperature gets down into i'm going to talk celsius a bit because i'm obviously in canada so the, the metric system which i think seven or eight degrees celsius which in fahrenheit i i don't know what that is but i think it's well I, we could do the conversion but is it 39 or 42 degrees fahrenheit somewhere in there i i, I don't know but uh, right yeah, those fish, uh, even the wild ones, the metabolism slows down to the point. They just can't quite, quite do it. You know, unless we get a warm rain, water temperature, a bump, and that metabolism kind of suddenly changes and you'll get a, you'll get a push sometimes late, late in the year. When in those situations occur, you'll get some fish over, but, uh, but primarily they've learned that they got to get up here. And as soon as we get, you know, some nights, five or four or five nights in a row where that, pulls that water temp down into below, you know, 20 degrees or 19 degrees Celsius, around 70 degrees Fahrenheit, they're coming. They're not going to wait and they got to get up here and that, you know, that could be the middle of August, could be the middle of September, you know, on a hot year, maybe that's the first October, but they're getting up here before mid-November or they're not going to reproduce, right? So...
0: Wow. I think that's what's, you know, moving on to the episode, I think once we get into it, what makes these fish so special, right? And we'll start to get into that. Like, people will be like super, like crazy, unbelievable what you have going compared to most of the other Great Lakes streams. But, you know, I think we can dig back into the warm water part of it. But I think I got so many questions to ask you, like, you know, how we're going to approach it. What are you doing? You know, how long your day is and everything else. But, Let's just take an average day because you are a casting instructor, you know, which is, you know, what about like the equipment you just sort of start out with? Like if somebody, you know, all the great lakes are a little bit different, but like, let's just go over, you know, maybe the rods, you know, the rods and the lines that you're using. And then we can just start digging in deeper and deeper to what you got going, how to target these fish.
2: Well, I mean, there's a lot of variability in that, I guess, depending on skill level that's coming out for the day. But if, uh let's just say we have an average angler has some experience under their belt can cast a cast a spay rod with, with uh, some, you know, relatively good proficiency. You know, I'm always working on the casting. I believe that educational part of a day is super important. You know, you gotta, you gotta send somebody away and, and give them something, right? Like they got to learn something from the day. So, you know, that's just kind of integrated throughout a day on the water uh, with me, I would say. And so I would say my preferred setup here on the rivers would be about a 12 foot six bay rod in a seven weight, you know, 13 foot sevens. Great. You know, a six weight in that 12 foot range is good rigged up with, uh, I guess if I had my preference, I would use an integrated running line with a Scandinavian head, you know, in that, whatever it may be 31, 33 feet long. So, uh, Nothing crazy. I'm not I, I don't get into the traditional lines or long bellies too much. I you know there is a there's a practicality of being able to switch tips and go from floating to sinking and all that kind of stuff. And unless I have someone who who truly wants, you know, that's the way they fish and they want to do it, and I can adjust the day to suit that, but uh, you know, set them up on the runs accordingly. But uh I would use a scandy line and we use a lot of straight floating and uh, intermediate tips. And, um, the, the heaviest tip I would ever put on would be about a sink three, you know, three inches per second, three to three to four, and that you're getting into November and you may be fishing in high water conditions at that point, high dirty water. You you know, you just want to, you want to get down into that, into that zone a bit. Right. So the fish knows the flies there, let's just say, but, uh, but you're still covering water and, and, uh, you know, I, I love that traditional, swung fly I I really don't do anything else wet fly swing I mean that's kind of suits suits what I do in a day I'm not I'm not nymphing for steelhead I'm not drifting yarn flies or anything like that I kind of like to think that my specialty over the years is is swinging flies in Ontario for steelhead and uh, the Grand River is the absolute picture perfect river to do that I have often compared it to the Miramichi or the Bulkley meet in the middle. And, and you've got the Grand River. You have these beautiful glides and riffles and wide runs that you can cast this cast a line out over and, and swing a fly. And it's a beautiful thing as far as I'm concerned. But getting back to the day and the setups. So Scandy, I'll use a 12-foot uh, Rio tapered steelhead leader down to maybe 10, 12-pound test. And then, uh, then your fly and early season, like September, October. If we're fortunate to have uh enough to have fish in the river in September, if we've had the favorable temperatures. Um, like today I was out and swung a fly and I fished a number number six brown buck bug for a steelhead, So on a straight floating line. Okay. Can't now
0: say you, I can't you got the listener's attention right now because this is this is one of the things now if you're not like if you might have fell asleep or whatever you might want to pay attention because this is one of the only rivers that I know that consistently you can fish a floating line and have fish come to the surface or just a standard iron traditional wet fly. So go yeah. ahead. Sorry. I just had I like <laughs> you got you got me stoked already, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, it is really cool. Like right? I think it is really cool, and uh, I, I'll just mention real quick. I've I've fished these bugs on the Maitland River and the Sagina up north with success too. It's uh, if you can get if you can hit the conditions of and the water temps and there's fish there, they'll they will eat. I I would think it would be the same just about anywhere in the Great Lakes. It's just you just it just doesn't happen very often. It's more common on the Grand, but so anyways, a brown buck bug I fished uh, today. Unfortunately, without success, I mean, it was a successful morning. It was beautiful. The river looked amazing. You know, you know, of course, on my way back uh, home, I took a little walk up Whiteman's Creek just to confirm that uh, I wasn't fishing to nothing. And of course, I saw fish, fresh steelhead line in a couple of the lower pools there. So, you know, fish came through that that night and they were there. I just didn't get fortunate enough to get over one. But uh, I love I love Buck Bugs. Uh, fantastic flies. fish them on the Miramichi. Um, Fishing them everywhere I've ever fished. And I find them highly effective flies, you know. And uh, I guess I always, they don't look like anything or imitate anything. But to me, that's sort of almost like a, a big caddis pupa pattern, you know, just under the surface type of thing. Almost if you were to think about it from a trout perspective. But uh, other flies I like to fish are, are muddler, muddler style flies um, a lot. Again, they kind of ride high in the surface as well. And, and, that, and, and those flies will fish well off, off a tip too, actually. You can take them down a little bit and they can still be quite effective if you need to. And of course, you know your traditional hobo spays and that type of thing are highly effective as well. And before I keep going deeper in, into the winter steelhead flies, I guess you should back up and just say there are, like you mentioned, opportunities for dry fly uh, steelhead here um in the right conditions Uh, you and you're willing to sort of put your time in and work the water you can make it happen so it's uh very unique that
1: way so stonefly nets is always focused on quality over quantity and right now you can find out what a high quality handcrafted net is all about ethan runs his shop in the ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wood landing nets you'll see on the market I've been using the Stonefly nets for quite some time now. And every time I land a fish, I find myself enjoying the net as much as I enjoy looking at that fish. You can select from four sizes and many different options, including uh, choosing the handle, the loop, and the different types of burls that you put in there. For Ethan, fly fishing has always been a great memory that was created on a mooring. He was casting that three-weight bamboo rod that was passed down for generations and ethan is right now helping us create these same lasting memories every time we're on the water check out these custom classic wood nets right now if you head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly that's wetflyswing.com stonefly s-t-o-n-e-f-l-y to get started right now okay back to the show
0: so if you were to look at the fly design in that can you know maybe could you sort of, I mean, you you mentioned a few patterns, but there's always been like, do you think a wet fly needs like jungle cock eyes on it? Or do you think there's like a, like, is there like, okay, these are my three flies that if they don't, like, I always say controlled fly. Like this is the one that I had the most confidence in. One of my clients has that on. And the other one is the crash test dummy that you're <laughs> always doing a little experimenting with. Do you, uh, what's your thoughts on the jungle cock eyes? And like, maybe the sizes of a wet fly that, you know, you might do if you don't get one coming up, like where would you go next? Like, you know, skate one and come back with a wet fly, you know, what's your program doing that?
2: Yeah. I mean, personal preference, let's just say I'm not competing in a a run with other anglers. Um, I would always start high in the water column with a bug or a dry, if I could talking personally a little bit, uh, I guess I should talk a little bit more with if I have clients in the boat, but uh, would usually definitely put on a fly that I definitely have lots of confidence in on one rod. So a lot of times that's going to be a hobo spay in black and blue, right? And I'm going to have them follow the fellow in the front, say with a buck bug. That would be my like one-two punch on on a on a pretty regular basis. Either that or a a muddler with a spay hackle tied into it. Let's just say. Ah, those Those are, yeah, those are kind of my, kind of my confidence flies. Okay. So, all right. So every
0: guide, we don't want to fish black, blue. I mean, I don't want to, but if you go to the Bulkley, you go to any steelhead river, you better have black and blue on sometime during the course of the day. What's your take on black, blue? Is it the color contrast? Is it just because it's dark silhouette? Is it just, what is it?
2: Yeah, I think it's a, a good attractor pattern. I mean, black's a great color for steelhead, right? And uh, the, blue com- the blue combo of that. And I mean, I tend to tie them with a little bit of uh, flashaboo or uh, oh, the name is escaping me, but I dub the body with uh, uh, ice dub. Ice dub, that's it. And, you know, it's got a lot of flash in it. And if these fish are coming in fresh, they're aggressive. They see that they're they're going to take it right it swings into their into their zone or their territory they don't want to get pushed out of the lie by anything they're gonna they're gonna strike and i think that the that black and blue and that contrast and the light coming through like i would always tie those flies very sparse like i like them to look big but the light's got to penetrate if that makes sense through the materials sure so yeah and and that's sort of sort of the, my approach to, or my take on the black and blue, I guess I would say, you know, and then if I said, I really like olive and white as well with some copper in it, I mean, you know, <laughs> I love you. my already. next choice. I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
0: I love you already. That's like my go-to stuff. It's like, we're coming to, you know, to the same conclusion and we're like almost 700 miles
2: apart. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the, the black and blue to me, that's kind of like you know, what, what, do, what do the fish see when they see that? To me, that's something that they've seen in the lake when they've been feeding out there, whether that's a herring or a, a shiner of some kind or something along those lines. And when you you transition to that all of a white with a copper, well, to me, especially in Lake Erie tributaries, that's an emerald shiner kind of, kind of approach to it. So, yeah, I mean, steelhead are an aggressive fish when they want to be, right? I mean, if you, uh, you know, show that fly to them and it's got a little flash and They think that they don't want that in their space. And to me, they're kind of a, kind of a mean, moody, aggressive fish when they decide to be. And, uh, they're just gonna, they're just gonna smack it. And, uh, some days that's the mood they're in. So if you scale down and fish natural flies or bugs, sometimes they just let it go over their heads. And it's just like, I'm not interested today. And you follow up with that hobo spay and, and they crush it so i uh, you know every day is different so
0: yeah i like yeah, uh, i like your idea with the flash too with the translucent because a lot of times i'll have that you know it might not be a hobo but just sort of the same thing i'll use more flash on one but then you know even though it's sparsely tied just sort of like you said flash or, you know crinkle flash but then sometimes it's too much in their face and then I'll just use the body flash as the flash and cut the main flash down. And it's amazing that you know when you put it in their awareness zone, they don't push out of it. Then it, it allows them that you allows you to sneak it in there, right? And then it's like you said, then it's like, oh, what is it? Where before it even gets there, they're like, oh, there's the big giant flashy thing. I've seen this, and I'm out of the, I'm out of it. Especially when the water has been pressured and it gets to that point where me and you are like, man, it's getting a little low, but we got to fish anyway, type deal. But what about scalping patterns? Like, you know, we know they're eating, you know, pushing around. Is that something they get really angry at? scalping patterns or stuff like that? Or,
2: uh, so scalping patterns have been pretty popular on the river with some of the locals over the years. Um, and I fished them and it's funny you mentioned that I did, uh, I kind of just created or came up with a variation of a scalping pattern last year and kind of been something that's been bouncing around in my head for a couple of years. And, you know, Lake Erie and the introduction and, and the food beforeage base out there, they have the gobies that right. I, I need, I need to come up with a goby fly. So I kind of, I kind of fine tuned that last year, been working on it a couple of years. And, uh, so it's very, a, a very sculpany looking fly and, uh, with uh I tie it with a kind of a wool head and little bead chain eyes, not too heavy. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of goby flies out there kind of, to me, are bass flies, so the challenge was to the challenge was to take a goby idea in my head and turn it into a steelhead pattern somehow, and not make it look like a bass fly. So, the introduction of a little bunny strip and a and a spay hackle in there, and a little bit of a little bit of flash, and I was off to the races. And a highly effective fly, uh, late late fall in the Grand River last year for me, actually. So it's been tested. It's there's multiple multiples in my box now and they're ready to fish this year so
0: (laughs) (laughs) a lot of times i do this too is it later in the season you know i'll start playing around with it because they've seen everything especially you those fish have probably seen some multiple fly you know flies or whatever but okay let's um let's dig in a little bit you talked a little bit about you how you work on their casting skills you know and then you, you make the trip successful for them because a lot of times, you know, you're dealing with somebody who may not get the distance you want and stuff like that. Is there any tips you could give anybody, you know, um other than like take a casting lesson like when they first, you know, start getting into the game with swinging flies? Is that do you have any tips for that at all?
2: Or? Well, it never hurts to take a casting lesson before you jump right in and go steelhead fishing. I mean, that's a that's a pretty big leap of faith in my opinion. So, you know, having a little a little experience under your belt goes a long ways. But I have been successful getting first timers in the boat and getting them in the steelhead. But I tend to, you know, I tend to definitely cater my rods and my line setups to giving them every advantage they need to get a 50 foot cast if I can. And and then, you know, it all of a sudden becomes a lot of fishing from the boat instead of waiting and that type of thing. So oh. anchoring up from the drift boat on a seam and getting close to that rock in the main run and 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 working. Sp- I'm going to say working lies as opposed to covering water, let's just say. But, um, yeah, I don't know if you, if you run into that type of situation, but, uh, I don't know. You go, go into my basement and you kind of look at all the rods there. I got steel head rods that are single hand, seven weights, nine feet, you know, through the switch rods all the way up to the spay rods and, you know, that telephone call the night before to who I'm fishing with and understanding their skill set you know, what they want to get out of the day, you know, what, what's your goal for the day? Do you, do you really want to swing a fly up on a buck bug on, on a scandy line? And and if so, like, are you going to be able to achieve that? Are, are you skilled enough to do that? Okay. Well, maybe not. So maybe we're going to bring out the switch rods and we're going to fish, you know, intermediate tips and stick to those hobo spays and that type of thing. And, cover those traditional spots in the river and try to get a fish that way. I, I, work hard to try to tailor the day to, you know, make sure people are getting their best chance at a fish. Let's just say.
0: What do you mind the spot on the spot? Cause you know, the spot on the spot, like you know where they live. And then sometimes, you know, if it's a casting distance thing or whatever, it's pretty cool to hear that you can walk in wade or actually fish from the boat, you know, which makes it a huge success for, you know, an angler, when sometimes even a best skilled angler can't get out to that, you know, that sweet spot, right? So you do have to fish from the boat, you know, yeah. which is pretty cool that you do that. And then when you do that, if you have two anglers, do you do a like they do up in Michigan, a, a dual rod swinging? With, or do you just have one client while the other client sits down? Or how do you work from the boat like that? Take turns or how do you do
2: that? I do a lot of taking turns. Okay, um, You know, it depends on the anglers. Uh, I do have... Uh, yeah i mean there's a lot of variables in that but i do depending on the spot sometimes i can fish two, anchor up right in the middle of the run get the dual casting going you know there's a certain skill set our anglers need to be able to do that and keep an eye out for each other that definitely happens um i do like to drop an angler and wade an angler and then fish one from the boat i do do that a lot um sweet because often yeah i mean often you have a, a a person who's uh Who has some proficiency? Who's you know bringing a friend along and wants to get them out and introduce them? And the the day lends itself to me working a little more with someone like that and setting the other person a little bit more free to do their thing, right? So, I I don't know about you, but I find it's a it's an adjustment every day, and you just got to be ready for it.
0: (laughs) The best anglers, the best anglers around, are the ones that can adapt the fastest during the course of the day.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, well, yeah, exactly,
0: Steelhead aren't really hard to catch. They're just hard to find, right?
2: <laughs> well, that's just, this is the trick here for sure. I mean, I would describe the Grand River as like a steelhead highway, right, with its spawning tributaries entering it. So we don't have any real minimal spawning in the main stem at all. So they're just passing through, right? They're, not, they're here for a good time, but not a long time, let's just say. So, I mean, you know, one day, <laughs> one day. <laughs> One day i caught a few fish in one spot you know the next day they're gone so
0: uh you know, the worked.
2: yeah exactly so so the day for me is it's it i it's a searching pattern to a degree i mean obviously there's lies and spots that are known holding spots for these fish but because it's a super highway they're they're not always there huh. um you know what i mean so so it's uh i sort of visualize uh, i'm starting up river and the steel starting starting down river. And at some point through the day, we're going to intersect. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And that's when we get our fish. And of course, I'm, you know, it's not like that every day, but there's going to be fresh fish moving pool through as well as some fish are hanging around. And it's that fresh pod that I, I'm always hoping to intersect, right? They're the ones that are most aggressive on the fly and are willing to take it. So
0: so, you know, as this water is sort of like right on the verge of being out of temperature until they get to that somewhere near those cool sanctuaries, do you find yourself fishing like the heads of the run in really fast water? Because these fish are like moving through the elevator pools and need it. And then as they get closer to the cooler water, then they can settle into the more traditional areas or is that your program or do you just have to fish no stone unturned and then just roll with the program until you put that pattern together
2: for the day? Uh, well, both. Let's just okay. say, yeah. I mean, there's those there's those spots. Well, temperature will dictate that. But I mean, if I'm on the edge of temperature, safe temperature, let's call it, and those fish are hunkering are following those springs and hunkering in there, that's not really a day I should be out there targeting steelhead. I mean, the main river's too warm in that case. Gotcha. You know, if I if I hook them, I pull them out. that fish is going to be played out and probably going to die. So. I wouldn't fish in those conditions. So, I mean, traditionally my guide, because of that guide season really picks up in the first week, October, second week, October right, and goes like a solid four to six weeks. I mean, I I think it's about a six week primetime season here. It varies from year to year, but this year we're very fortunate. We've had our water temperatures are holding around 66 degrees and have been for a solid two weeks. Uh, so I've you know been out to been able to get out and fish uh, and not have to worry about that. Where other years they'll come on cool nights, three or four nights in a row, they'll come up and get up here. But all of a sudden, water temps, that weather warms up, they hunker into the springs, you know, or try to scoot up those trips, And I'm not fishing when it's like that. That's not that's not beneficial to the fish or our fishery. So, sounds like a great program.
0: I think I think all good guides we all we all live by that motto, right? There's a time that we wanna wanna get a paycheck, but there's a time that we you know that our home waters are more important. But that's pretty cool. But thanks. So, what do you um? So, like on an average day, I mean, I just got back from British Columbia. You know, there's numbers are low. Like on expectation for encounters, would it be like? one every 3 days or is it like one one encounter a day or is it one a week or like what is the fisheries like expectations if you you know you know fishing there
2: oh that's a great question i mean uh last year it was fantastic and if i said you know we were encountering you know up to three three to four fish a day holy um, mad. that was really good fishing right um, and we had we had a good return of fish um and we had low water so the super highway wasn't, you weren't able to travel quite as fast as you would have liked. The fish were getting stopped up, stopped up and sitting in the buckets. And I actually, by the end of the season, I was starting to feel pretty guilty because once we got it sorted out, you, you just knew they were there. And I, <laughs> I, I mean, I think there was a few fish that were caught more than once at that point. So it was really good. I mean, really good fishing and, uh, the fish got pressured pretty, they pretty got, they got beat up a bit. So I would say so, but I mean, it is what it is. Those are the conditions we were faced with. And once we had that low water sorted out, which it was the lowest I'd ever seen as a guide on the river. So it was down to uh, 14 cubic meters per second. And today I fished at 29. Well, traditionally speaking, you know, 29, 35, 40, that's kind of like an average fall flow on, on this river. And it's very fishable at all, all those. But when you get down to 14, that's below like low summer flows, which should be around 18 to 23 cubic meters per second. So if you can visualize that 14, well, the river gets pretty bony. And those buckets where those fish like to lie and those deep spots of the pools, well, they were piled up in there pretty good. And, uh, you know, they're jockeying for position and trying to get the best lie. And you just put a fly over there. They're pretty agitated and they're, they're going to come to it. So, I mean, it's good.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's really good because it, it's, it's, you know, you, there's no pressure of like, you know, cause the report card of a guy's like, you know, we, we, we sort of supposed to catch the client of fish, but you know, maybe this year, but I would say, or let's just say maybe one encounter a day. I mean, that's what I really look for when I'm swinging a fly, I get one encounter a day. Probably closer to maybe one to three and if we get one to the boat that's a good day that's sort of in my fishery you know what i'm
2: 100 that okay. yeah i I didn't, I didn't mean to oversell there or anything i was just describing no, last know. year's fishing <laughs> i know but, but
0: <laughs> i've had those days where it's like okay i can do no wrong and no one can do no wrong for weeks on end but we do you know british columbia was super tough you know yeah. you get maybe an encounter a day but um You can go really days in a row without even having an encounter. But um, so you mentioned that stream, you know, the cubic feet per second. You you mentioned that that's a pretty big window. So it doesn't seem like the Grand blows out as bad as some of like the South Shore rivers of mine. If it looks like rain, they blow out like the Cat and all the rest of them, and the Grand on my end, they just blow out. So it seems like it can handle a lot more water, huh?
2: Uh, it does a pretty good job. I would say yes. Um, the biggest problem I think with the rains is, uh, it'll bump, right? It's the the street wash from the towns and the cities, you know, it'll come in, it'll bump the river, um, depending on how much rain you got. And then, and then she'll settle again back where where she needs to be. And those little bumps are actually kind of good. That's what keeps, that keeps drawing fish in. Right. But if we get, uh, if we get a big rain, let's just say some years and you know, it starts to fill up the reservoir at Bellwood Lake. Let's just say you get those uh and they decide they got to open up those gates and let some water out. Well, and you're kind of, you're dead in the water sometimes for a week and a half. Right. I mean, it's kind of done, but, and, and the problem in the grand, it is such a big watershed that if you do get a, a wet year or wet season, um it, it can, well, I've seen the river blow up for four weeks straight. I believe and it, kind of. Yeah, and show, and it'll write it off almost. But that's not the norm. I mean, those flood control dams actually, because because it's almost like a a tailwater fishery. There's three of those dams up there on different tributaries, so it it maintains a nice base flow, generally speaking at all times down in our down in this area which is great for the fish and the fishery and the ability for those fish to migrate up the river and um they'll hold a little water back up there we get a little street wash from the towns and you know the nith river can throw a the nith's a big trib that goes up and it drills uh, drains some farmland up there and if they get a lot of rain up on that branch it can it can kind of blow us out for a day or two you know sends a lot of a lot of mud down the river I mean, (laughs) it's not great, but, uh, usually that river will come around 20, 40, 48 hours and settle down. And some of the best fishing I've had over the years at times is, uh, you know, after, after those rains, right. And that, that river pops, starts to settle, starts to clear those fish, a fresh pot of fish have come up from Lake Erie and they're settling in. And, uh, you know, there's a little color in the water they're feeling pretty secure, water's up a bit. So we start targeting the edges a little more and fishing the soft edges. And there we are, we're into the fish. So again, right. adjust.
0: So that sounds like that's the perfect window like I have. So is it, your visibility would be, could you see your boots in deep water? Like, you know, how, how what is the visibility? Like, what are you looking for? I always prefer clear water. Okay.
2: I, I like it clear so I can fish my buggier patterns and Right. and that type of thing, and my naturals, let's just say. But if there's a tinge of color, um, perfect to me. Man, like you said, if you're knee deep and you can see your boots, or you're fishing for sure, I think that's fine. 18 inches, I think you're in the game. Something that's kind of unique, I guess since we're talking about clarity, one thing that's kind of cool in our river that over the years, I've sort of developed, this, it's theory, I, I believe it's truth, but with the spring water entering the river, That's coming out of the ground clear, right? Wicking into the river from the bottom or the sides as clear water. So there's actually spots in the river which might look like chocolate milk on top. But when you go down, you actually have some viz there available to you because there is this influence of clear water coming in from the bottom in some spots. So it's not always a write-off when it appears to be. And I've uh, uh, been able to take advantage of that a few times over the years. So
0: that's a, a secret under the radar intel. <laughs> <laughs> so,
2: yeah, edit we, that out. <laughs> yeah,
0: wouldn't retract that one. So if you have some of these, these sweet spots that are coming in, do you feel that these fish, because they're so, you know, they are really homing in on their natal, you know, reproductive creeks and that? Will they sort of, they get closer, will they start hugging like river left or river right as they get closer just to stay within their home scent? Like I know a lot of times, like if I'm fishing on the Skeena or whatever, that these fish will stay on river right, river left once they start getting that little scent of home. Do you sort of do that as you get closer to that? Or is that just the river that that sweet water spreads out and you really don't pay much attention to that?
2: I would say they they like it. They hug it. They try to nose into it. Okay. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, it's not it's not standard, but I think that definitely happens for sure.
1: Today's episode is sponsored by Jackson Hole Fly Company. They've been designing and manufacturing fly fishing equipment and flies since 1978 in their home base in Wyoming. In 2020, they launched jhflyco.com and started selling gear directly uh, online to anglers all over the country. You can go ahead and right now and check out their huge selection of uh, rods, reels, fly lines, tools, accessory. Uh, and right now, if you go to jhflyco.com swing, you can get 25% off your first order. Just like Amazon, they'll ship everything directly to your door, saving you time and money. But unlike Amazon, you'll be supporting a great fly shop and this podcast by simply grabbing a few uh, products, maybe just a couple of flies. Check it out. There we go. Get free shipping right now. All orders over $50 and uh, get that 25% off your first order. jhflyco.com slash swing. Okay. Back to the show.
0: So let's just talk a little bit about your progression. Cause I, I get a lot of times, you know, depending on water clearing the fish and that because you have this unique strain of fish that gets pretty aggressive and you're fishing at their optimum water temperature. Like, do you like, how long do you fish a run? Like, do you go through with like a you know, a surface pattern with a wet fly, then come through with a tip? Or do you just sort of, you know, mow through the water, just looking for the aggressive fish? Or what's your, what's your pace when you're working down the river? Because I know you got some miles to cover, but, you know, what's your, what's your game plan when it comes down to that? Because that's a pretty big, you know, nugget that everybody wants to hear.
2: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, that's kind of a tough one because if i do the drift my traditional drift down the river which i i do like to drift because i do like to cover water i like to i like to search them out um i like to you know hit 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 as many spots as i can and once i find them i'll slow down let's just say but but i would say my approach to a let's just say a run that we're gonna fish it would be two passes or i guess if you have two anglers so one and two if i don't get a bump or a touch or a sniff and I've got my, my setup with my two confidence flies, I may circle back to a, let's just say a sweet spot and try it again. You know, there's a rock that's a known lie. I'm going to, I'm going to hit that and, you know, switch that fly out, maybe put a different, get a tip on and run around, you know, run it through there for an extra 10 or 15 minutes because I, that spot has proven to produce well over the years. Um, Otherwise I'm going to pick up and I'm going to move on to the next run and try to try to find that pod coming up you know so that's that's would be my approach um I don't I don't overfish it um, and also you know I'm also sharing the river with other anglers that are there um I don't I don't like to get camped out in any one place per se I like to i like to rest my water I like to rotate it and if someone else is out there fishing in that run when I come through with the boat I do have the luxury of covering some some water i did i'll just you know I'll, there's a guy in there fishing I'll, I'll just go past it and leave him there let him let him fish the run you know and i'll i'll take the next one so to speak so Man, uh,
0: great etiquette wish everybody had that mindset right you
2: know but well i try to do that but <laughs> right.
0: Sometimes, well sometimes it's just a matter of getting the water we want to catch you know just because it gets so crowded but so you know i think you have a lot of great bullet points What I want to touch on a few little maybe techniques in a lot of times is that this conversation of like, so you're, you're pretty much a a swung fly angler guide majority of the time, if not all the time. So this goes for like, you're swinging, you're swinging with the presentation. What about holding a loop on your shooting line or rate to the reel? What is your, what is your thoughts on that? You know, high rod, low rod, like. Because a lot of anglers, you know, there's so, so many different Atlantic salmon, steelhead, West coast. What's your thoughts on that?
2: Mm, I like a loop generally speaking. Okay. Um, especially early season with water temperatures, you know, between 55 and 65, if you don't fish a loop, these fish are breaking you off. I mean, you got to give them, you got to give them that, that shock absorber and have, give them a chance to turn on the fly in my opinion. Okay. Um, and 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 I would say as the season progresses and the water temperatures get lower, my loop gets smaller, let's just say. So I might fish a pretty big loop on my spay rod, like 18 inch or two foot loop almost. If you're casting a long line out over a big long run and let's just say fast to moderate pace of water. And when that fish strikes, I'm just going to give them that two feet of line, turn on the fly and let them come tight and then you know, raise to the bank and tighten on the fish. If I get down in some of the water, like you're familiar a bit with the gram. Like we also fish a lot of what I call frog water here. Um, Right. Drives people absolutely bananas because it's such a slow swing. In that case, my loop will get smaller. Um, We're fishing. We're definitely fishing broadside a little more and the fish will come up and they take a little more time to turn on it. And once they've turned on it, I, I don't want to give them too much. It gives them an opportunity to drop the fly before it comes tight and that hook finds home. So I I, I got to adjust a bit depending on flow and, and the location I'm fishing within a river, but generally speaking, I do like the loop. Okay. I learned that way on the Miramichi. Right. I do have some of my clients fish straight off the reel, though. Okay. You know, that first fish that grabs and they pinch the loop off to the cork, try to set the hook or break the fish off, which has right. happened, you know, a few times. And I'd say, okay, we'll go straight off the reel and kind of cross our fingers a bit that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that hook's <laughs> going to find home, right? So, <laughs>
0: right. you know, I
1: mean,
0: that's one nice thing about a click and paw. You you know, you could just let them just say, don't move the rod till you hear the clicker going. Then you're like, yeah. this. but with 12 pound, you know, you're, you're dealing with right on the edge of, like, a serious industrial accident, right? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, there's, there's like a million things that could happen when that water temperature is in that high 50s, mid-50s. You know, you've got firecracker fish that just want to, like, just break you off all the time. But what about the hook? So, barbless or barbed?
2: Uh, definitely barbless. Um, okay, sweet. So my own my own personal policy if, with flywater guiding, no matter where I'm fishing or guiding, is single barbless catch and release for sure. Uh, but we do have special regulations on in this area of the river that I guide in, which is single barbless catch and release and no bait. So it's about as close as you can get to having a fly fishing only section here in Ontario, I guess. So
0: Right. I mean that's that's the unique thing about it is that um And that's what I sort of want to dig into next is I think we've covered everything as far as like, you know, I wanted to cover tips, but it sounds like you really don't do much more than a type three tip. You know, you're letting these fish come up. These fish are extremely active where I'm sort of dredging. I hate to say it on the south shores of Erie, you know, the water temperatures are much colder. These fish are dowered down. I'm dredging, dredging to get them up. It's mainly just to park it in their zone long enough, Right. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure you have to do it as the water temperature drops and another whole podcast will be on the Saugeen and the Maitland because that's just a whole other skill set, another conversation. But, you know, so you yeah. are the co-vice president of the Middle Grand River TU chapter. And I think without the <laughs> conservation efforts on this river, it would not, you know, Larry Halleck and all the, all my Canadian friends up there, this river would not be what it is today. Maybe could you shed us a little light on how this conservation efforts and what you're doing to keep this river so vibrant and make it better than it was.
2: Absolutely. Um, I guess I'll start by saying that, yeah, personal experiences, it absolutely makes a difference for sure. I mean, I think there's a few skeptics out there about, you know, restoration versus stocking. I mean, there was a time there about 10 years ago before COVID where I had a couple pretty tough fall seasons out there on the water and uh You know, the the returns were 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 falling off for sure. And you know, we you know, beaver dams and in some of these tributaries blocking access to spawning, you know, combined with a couple of hot summers, and all of a sudden three years later, you've got not too many fish coming up the river. And uh so it was interesting, Larry Halleck and um uh Larry Mellers, I believe, kind of. I you you've probably met Larry Mellers kind of spearheaded the the reforming of the middle grand river chapter and as soon as i caught wind of that you know i was i was there i wanted to be a part of it and uh and as we worked away got up in those tributaries of the nith river and up on whiteman's creek and started getting some beaver dams out of there and building some structures and channelizing those streams and washing the sediment away and exposing that gravel it didn't take long before there was fish on there spawning and and uh you know those beaver dams warm the river up well now we've got cold water getting further down into those into the system and entering into the NIF and cooling the NIF, and and the NIF is cooling the grand again and the resident population started to come back and there was the insect hatches i i swear they improved as well so i mean i think at the time uh larry was our president when that first started uh now uh we have, uh, he stepped down and he's kind of overseeing more projects and that type of thing, which is great because that's his skill set was, uh, river stewardship over the years. And, uh, Hina Kovacs has taken over, done a great job. And I'm working alongside her. And uh, actually, Larry Mellers is the other, um, he's my co VP. So we do some work together and we just have a great group and we go out and we get in a stream and fix it up and have a blast and, you know, go for a, Go for a beer afterwards it's you know great social as well as great work that we do and uh i mean i've seen the improvements on in the water quality and the fish down there so it's uh it's great stuff i i really hope we can you know keep going and move forward because we've done a lot of projects and now we're starting to set our sights on you know a little bigger things you know a little bigger projects there's a little dam on a tributary that we want to get out that's going to provide more access and get more cold water in all these little improvements we can make it just uh it just helps the river tenfold. It's uh it's fantastic stuff. And for me as a guide, getting to know all that and, and that uh understanding that fishery and, and hanging around guys like Larry Halleck, I mean the the knowledge base there and the information in that in that guy's brain, I mean, it's uh it's pretty great to tap into that. And uh, I think it's really up to my game as a guide, actually. It's really really given me a confidence and understanding of my, of the water body that I'm guiding in that I, I never really had in these other places that I guided, you know? So it's it's a great
0: great mentorship. He's mentored myself just in my home waters. It's, It's always great to, you know, protect the waters that you stand in, right. Or at least be aware of what it is, but, so um is it a 1 year smolting process um in those streams after you know after the fries and around a 1 year smolting before they start heading back down the lake Erie is it is it 2 years or you know like some of the BC streams like the Dean it's 4 or 5 years but have you is there any intel on the how long before they smolt or no Well
2: it's it's an interesting question because we've actually been doing some scale samples and and collection on this so it can be looked at Sure. Um, um, but the resident rainbow trout and the steelhead, there's a lot of mix and matching and crossover going on. So, so to get back to your question, it's three years, I'll say on, on an average, I would say. So young of the year, par for one to two years, and then they smolt out. So, wow. so that's, that's just the, them living in, in the Creek. Right. And right. then they smolt out back to the lake to eat for the summer and then they'll return. Right. And then course uh i think we have fish that are getting into that three-year repeat spawner situation maybe four i think four is about the max they i think i've heard they can go up to about five years but i mean if we had five-year repeat spawners i i think we'd have 25 pound steelhead in the river so uh I, i'm not seeing <laughs> that so <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I think what makes it very unique and I think what makes it unique to your fishery is that, you know, because they're in that stream for so long compared to like a one year stock, you know, hatchery fish, you know, these fish are surviving on anything that hits the water for three years. Yeah. When they come back that first year, second year, and maybe the third year, they're on the, like, they're on the, they're more trouty, if that makes sense. Don't you agree?
2: hundred percent. My, uh, my steelhead flies over the years have been, and my techniques have become more trouty, troutier and troutier as the years go by. Especially on low water years, you know, you scale those flies down, and my steelhead spay flies start looking like, uh, you know, wet flies or or uh, with a little flash in them almost, you know. And yeah, uh, it does. They do become very trouty. It's uh, it's really, it's really cool. It's really cool. I mean, steelhead, but they can be quite trouty. So right. it's uh yeah you hit the nail on the head so yeah
0: (laughs) that's the awesome fishery tyler um is there anything else you'd like to just add conservation wise or topic wise before we wrap up this episode or like are you all good or what are you thinking
2: Uh, i mean what am i thinking i was uh, thank you very much for having me on first off right um and um Yeah. I mean, I would encourage anyone who loves to swing flies traditionally for steelhead to consider the Grand River, um, for sure. And, you know, you could, uh, you know, you can come up and kind of bump around on your own in the city of Brantford or Paris and find spots to fish or give me a shout and I can get you out on the water. Love to, uh, love to see some people from south of the border coming up and enjoy what we have. It'd be my pleasure to host people here and, um, I mean, I, I am trying to think if maybe we didn't touch on something. You know, I'll just say it's a special river, holds a special place, and in, in my heart, uh, I think it deserves respect. Uh, I think most of the locals around here do do that, and uh, yeah, I just want to take good care of it and enjoy it. And um, what can I say? Summer that, that sums it up right there. I think.
0: <laughs> I don't. I think. I think you do. A, a, you respect your river, and I think all the fly fishing community respects you the way you respect it and treated so cool so and for the listeners how can they get a hold of you what's the best way to get a hold of you get some questions answered maybe hopefully get a lesson or you know a guide trip out of you what's the uh, or your host trip to mirror machine Atlantic salmon oh. fishing what's the best uh what's the best way to get a hold of you and get what you're doing man
2: yeah you can pop onto my website www.flywaterguiding.com my phone number is on there And I think you can link to link to Facebook and Instagram through there as well. If you want to catch me that way, 226-268-8397, just give me a shout. Email is probably the best way to get me though, because, well, we're just entering into the guide season here and I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'm not quite sure. I got a pretty full schedule ahead of me. So I'll be pretty much a zombie by uh, the end of November, I think, but uh, that's okay. It's the way that's what you want. You got to get into the groove and, uh, you know, know your river. And that's when you know it best When you're on there every day. So,
0: yeah, isn't that the truth, man? But, you know, I can't thank you enough for sharing all the info and being so kind and everything else you got going on the river. Um, I want to thank all the listeners. You know, if you have any questions, reach out to Dave or myself, you know, or any other topics you want to cover. But until the next episode peace out and thanks for the listen and thank you tyler again man way cool enjoy my
2: pleasure can't wait to see you up here fishing for a day jeff sometime you too man thanks tyler yeah take
1: care that is a wrap you can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com and please follow us on instagram and share this episode out with someone you love please send me an email dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right. Time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon.